Well, you walk into a crowd of strangers and uh, you're looking around and you think, that, that guy must be a Christian. Yeah, just, just look at him. You know, what, what, what distinguishing mark could there be that you could pick uh, a Christian from someone who wasn't? Or perhaps a more dangerous question would be to turn the question the other way around. Would there be any way for a stranger to know you're a Christian, that you believed in the Lord Jesus? Uh, what would the distinguishing marks be? Uh, would it be some sort of external symbol? I mean, Jesus said, didn't he, uh, you'll know them by their T-shirts. I'm pretty, that's, is that in I'm a liar three or something? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but people do it all the time, don't they? Wear crosses, they cross themselves, they have fish stickers on the car. I mean, this may be describing your car or, you know, the, the, the real low, you know, the honk if you love Jesus sign. Uh, <laughs> sorry? Text if you want to meet him. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> While you draw, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to think about that. There you go. All right. I don't know. Uh, well, those signs may or not be any indication that someone's a Christian. Of course, lots of people just like wearing crosses, uh, and it's kind of fashionable. Maybe, maybe a grandmother gave it to to someone, and you know they just kind of do it for as a keepsake. Uh, maybe. They're just walking around trying to ward off vampires. Hey, hey, and they've got garlic and holy water in, in their pockets as well. <laughs> just like crossing yourself is no indication that you're a Christian. Maybe it was a habit from childhood, from orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. If you ever watch soccer, you just see the, you know, the Spanish players crossing themselves all the time. Uh, maybe you're just superstitious. Uh, I was chatting with Amy Stevens, our link missionary in Argentina, a couple of days ago on Facebook, and she was telling me that she'd noticed that all the taxi drivers uh, cross themselves whenever they drive past a church. And maybe that's because they're trying to scare the hell out of people. I don't know. But, uh, so, uh, but uh, she asked a couple of them why they did, and they said, I'm oh, just, well, because, you know, that, that's how you get peace with God, isn't it? You know, it's sort of ward off the bad stuff. She asked one particular taxi driver who had, who had a, a, a framed photo of Jesus, well, not a photo, uh, a painting of Jesus, uh, on the dashboard, and he said that, well, someone gave it to me and they told me it was a good luck charm, and so I've kept it here, and I haven't crushed yet. So, <laughs> But, you know, she went on, he's not part of church, doesn't read the Bible, uh, said he loves his alcohol and drugs and is going for a bender on the weekend. and you know, kind of, So, I mean, you know, there's Jesus and crossing yourself, and it's got nothing to do with being a Christian. Having a fish sticker on the car, maybe that says you're a Pisces rather than a Christian. Uh, a friend of mine bought a car uh, from someone who happened to have a fish stick on the car, whether that person was a Christian or not, I don't know, uh, and he went, oh, huh, I might damage the car if I take it off. So he drove around for a couple of years with his fish sticker on his, on his little beaten-up Daihatsu charade. <laughs> and then he became a Christian later, and then he sold the car. And so when he had the sticker, he wasn't a Christian. When he had became a Christian, he got rid of the sticker. And it doesn't tell you anything, really, does it? Uh, so if those external signs are not marks of someone truly being Christian, what about well, more important things, you know, more obvious things like, like religious expression? Uh, what about baptism? Oh, you know, now we're talking sort of biblical stuff, right? Or confirmation or communion. Uh, well, they're a bit more biblical, at least, at least in the case of baptism, but... You know, I know and presumably you know plenty of people who've been baptised who uh, couldn't care less about Jesus. 
And confirmation, well, that's not even from the Bible. And it's just something we've made up because we don't know what to do with kids in the second generation. But, uh, you know, it's often grandma's just put the pressure on and said, you've got to go and do it. And they're going, okay, keep grandma happy because she gives me money at Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, communion, well, maybe that shows the person thinks themselves a Christian, and so that's maybe better, but even then it's not a great indicator. Well, what about spiritual prowess? Uh, surely that would mark someone out as a real Christian if someone's a prophet and can tell the future and they do it in the name of Jesus or, or drive out demons or, or do great miracles in the name of Jesus. Surely they've got to be one of God's people, right? Or, you know, a great preacher who's gifted with power and eloquence. They speak from the Bible and, and people are awed and they're encouraged and some have even become Christians themselves to it. But, but don't forget Jesus' own awesome and terrifying warning in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here are people you would think have all the signs of being Christians, super Christians. They think they have all the signs. They're, going, they're confused. What do you mean you're not going to let us in? You're our Lord. They call him Lord, they prophesied, they drove out demons, they did miracles, they really did them, all in his name. And yet Jesus says these haunting, dreadful words, the most haunting and dreadful words you could hear in all of eternity. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I hope you don't want to hear those words one day. No, none of those troll you truly whether someone is a Christian or not. And so if none of those things prove anything, well, is there a way you can tell? Well, in today's passage, John 13, Jesus says there is a mark, a true sign that someone's a Christian, the true mark of, of being one of his people, his mark. And it's found in verse 35 of John 13. If you've closed it, you may want to find it. We're going to be uh, moving through John 13 today. In a word... It's love. In a phrase, it's love one another. In a sentence, it's by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for the other. In a paragraph, it's a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for one another. This, says Jesus, is the true sign that others may know, in fact they will know, that you are one of his disciples. Love. And not just any love. It's, it's love like Jesus' love, which isn't something you can just put on like a badge. It's, it's not an exhibition. You can't, you can't fake it. You, you, it's not superstition, it's not a ritual, it's a reality. If you're one of Christ's people, you must love, and you will love. And Jesus says, it, 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 you'll be changed and it will radiate out from you and everyone will know because of it who you belong to. It's what you are. It's, it's the, change place that takes, the change that takes place in the heart of every Christian person. And it's not... 
that you have a loving disposition, a kindliness about you that, that some people come across, you know, as a, as a loving kind of person, just as some people come across as cranky, sour pusses, and others come across as angry, and some as happy. And it's not that you go around kissing everyone, you know. It's certainly not romantic love that we're talking about. Uh, it's clearly explained that it's, it's Jesus' kind of love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. The kind of love, the character of love, as well as the motivation for this love is found in the love of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to work out what this indelible mark looks like in someone's life, surely the most important thing we can establish then is what is Jesus' love like so that we can learn to see it in others and even more importantly live it out ourselves. And indeed, that is the main subject of this chapter, Jesus' love. Look at how the chapter starts, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now that's a little puzzling, isn't it? He now showed them the full extent of his love. That is, up until this point, it's been at least partially hidden. It's, we've only seen a bit of the picture of how profound and wonderful the love of Jesus Christ is. But now Jesus is going to show it to the full extent, the, the fullness of his love, what it, what it truly will look like in action. But why now? What, what's changed? What's happened? What's so significant about this time that now he will show them the full extent of his love? We're told at least three significant things about the time. Well, one, we're told it was before the Passover feast. That is just before. It was going to happen that evening and so he got them together. It's the annual festival of Israel, uh, the most important festival of Israel, the time when they, they celebrated and rejoiced and reenacted what had happened 1,500 years or so before when they had been released from slavery in Egypt through, through Moses and through ten terrifying plagues from God, which he brought on Egyptians. And in the end, the Egyptians had said, well, just get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Not if that's going to happen. And they celebrated that salvation each year by reenacting the tenth and final plague where the angel of death had come out and he had put to death the firstborn male of every household in the nation of Egypt. A lot of children died that night. And your child would die that night unless you had been warned and you had done what you were told and you had taken a lamb and you had slit its throat and poured out its blood and then scooped that up and painted it on the door frames of your house and on your gates. And if you'd done that and feasted on the lamb, well, the angel of death would pass over your house and you would be safe. In fact, it would mark you out as one of God's people who he was going to save. And each year they, they ate juicy roast succulent lamb in celebration to remember the sacrifice that had brought them their freedom. But there's a second significant thing about the time. Uh, we read it was also that Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world. 
And as he'd said over and taught over and over again to the crowds and to the disciples, that's in fact what he came for. He came to leave this world, to die. Chapter 3, verse 14, he said he'd be lifted up like a snake in the Old Testament on the pole that everyone who looked to him would find healing. In chapter 10, verse 11, he is the good shepherd who, who was going to give up his life for the flock. In chapter 12, verse 23, he said he's the grain of seed which unless it fell to the ground and died, it would never produce many seeds. Chapter 12, verse 34, and many other places. And, and that purpose, that mission, which none of them understood or accepted, was about to happen this very evening and he would become the great and true Passover lamb whose blood would be shed not to save people from slavery to Egypt or to Rome but to save them from slavery to sin and death. But the time's also significant for one other reason because Jesus has just finished up in the last chapter with the crowds. There's no more talking to the people out there. He's just with his band of followers. And for one last time, having loved them in the world, now he's in private, he was going to show the full extent of his love. He had this chance to sit and to talk with his closest and most intimate friends, the 12 men who've, who've given the last three years of their lives to him without question, who, who've come to know and acknowledge him as the Messiah, the Saviour, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And here together for one last time with Jesus, though they don't realise it yet, he's going to be taken from them. And he spends five incredible chapters, uh, in fact five of the most wonderful chapters in the entire Bible, uh, telling them all about his love and what's going to happen and how they're going to have to look after each other. And, and things that they need to know that's coming up. And we're given the privilege of eavesdropping on this very private and intimate conversation. Now, it's not really eavesdropping because we've been invited in because one of the men who was there, John, shared this with us. And it's a conversation which begins and ends and is filled with Jesus teaching them about true love a love that is deep and abiding, a love that springs from a sure hope of the future, a love that flourishes in a deep and abiding relationship with the Saviour, which is engrafted into our lives by the Holy Spirit, a love that protects and encourages and draws us closer together with him and with each other as we experience the hatred of the world and we're called to bear witness to him, all of which we'll see in the coming weeks. And so I hope, you know... It, if you've booked holidays for the next four or five weeks, cancel them, <laughs> right? This is, this is amazing stuff. But Jesus is yet to tell them any of that. So before he does tell them, he wants to show them the kind of love that he means for them to have by this highly symbolic act of foot washing that we've just read about and uh, some bozo's just done. <laughs> now, obviously, the disciples are embarrassed by it. And it's more than just a personal space issue. You know, some people, like my wife, detest people going near their feet. You know, and stuff. hey, honey, can I wash your feet? <laughs> uh, <coughs> I mean, I reckon if I was to offer to come around you, I've got still got the warm water here. It's a bit festy because uh, Andrew's feet have been in it. Um, 
you know, you'd, you'd think twice about letting me touch your feet because uh, it'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Um, I'm happy to do it if you really want to. <laughs> That's the offer uh, Dave was talking about. No one at 8 o'clock took, him, took me up on it, but anyway. Uh, doesn't mean you can't. Anyone? Yeah? You just got to check. Did I... Does he know I didn't shower this morning? Uh, <laughs> I didn't put the canister on. Oh. Did I clean out the fluff and the gunk? I mean, it's just... <laughs> What's the smell rating on my socks? I just <laughs> but it's not that. They, they saw as Jesus <coughs> humiliating himself before them and they couldn't handle it because this was, like we said, the dirty work, the servant's work. Uh, dirty industrial environment, the sandals were the norm and they didn't have concrete streets and so you walked around and you got filthy on your feet and yeah, you go home and you either wash your own feet because no one else is going to do it unless you're rich and you've got a servant or better, a slave uh, and you get them to do it for you. You tell them to do it. It's not something you'd do for a peer or, or worse still for your lesser. <coughs> but here Jesus, the master, you know, whom they've followed and given their lives for, you know, strips down to his long johns and singlet, hitches the towel around his waist and carefully, lovingly, intimately washes their feet. But I want to suggest, and you've probably heard that sermon before, I want to suggest it's even more than just humility, that it's more than just a loving act of service that no one else was expected to do. It's more than just giving them an example of what to do. Because he could have chosen any number of menial servant tasks to do for them that evening, but he chose this one. He could have gone and prepared the food himself. He could have been the waiter. He could have massaged their shoulders while they reclined and fed them grapes. Yeah, he could have done any number of things. Why, why choose to start to show the full extent of his love this way? Verse 10. Jesus answered, Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. So we're not just talking about washing feet. We're not just talking about the disciples being hospitable kind of people. We're talking about being clean. And the cleaning we're really talking about is the cleansing from sin which is about to happen on the cross where Jesus will die on our behalf. That's why, Peter, unless I wash you... You will have no part of me. And if you have no part of me, you're not going to be clean. It's all pointing to the cross and what is about to happen where he really will show them the full extent of his love. And notice how loving Jesus is here, that it even extend this sign of incredible love to the one he knew was about to reject him and betray him and hand him over to the, to the priests and have him killed the man who we already know and Jesus already knew was a thief who'd been putting his hand in the till, taking what he wanted. Uh, the man who was prophesied a thousand years previously by King David in Psalm 67, a man who was prophesied 600 years previously by the prophet Jeremiah and prophesied 500 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah, the man Jesus knew before he was even born would sell him out for about 300 bucks in today's terms. 
And yet Jesus washes his feet too, along with the others. No, he shares his meal. He even gives him, feeds him a bit off his plate, as we read. Now, some of you might be wondering as an aside about the betrayal of Judas. More specifically, what's, what's this stuff about the devil you know, entering into him? You know, was he possessed? You know, did he not really, was he not really in his right mind? Was it really his fault? And what about the prophecies? Doesn't that mean that, that God knew this was going to happen? Did, in fact, God plan for this to be the case? You know, maybe you feel Judas was a little bit hard done by. <laughs> Sorry for him. But let me ask, whose will was it that Judas would betray Jesus? Who, who wanted it to happen? Well, did Judas want it to happen? Yeah, yeah, because he wanted the money. Yeah. Did Satan want it to happen? Yeah, he wanted Jesus gone. Did God want it to happen? Yes, because that's what he'd come to do. See, what was Jesus doing? He's giving into his greed, pure and simple. He wanted the money. That is what he loved. He loved it more than his friends. He loved it more than his master. He loved it more than God. He'd been helping himself to the cash. He'd been stealing from the rest of them. And like the great majority of humanity, he did not stop to think. He did not realise that he was bringing judgment and damnation upon himself. Too hard to think about. What about Satan? You know? He's trying to destroy the Son of God. He wanted him out of the way, gone, kaput. And I bet he was gleefully rubbing his hands together thinking, look at that sucker. He, he's the greedy guy. I reckon I can get him to do it. You know, And you know, he, he's just hoping to destroy the air of heaven and crush God's plans and you know, stick it to God. Yet he didn't realise that he was unwittingly bringing about his own downfall and damnation. What about God? What was he doing? Well, he was glorifying himself with a glory no one expected, that no one understood until afterwards, that no one could grasp, even though it was there to be seen the whole time. In fact, Jesus explains it to them plainly even here. See in verse 32, 31. Jesus just left the party to do his evil work, and what does Jesus say as the door closes? When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of God glorified, Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, that is in the Son of Man, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Because he's just walked out the door. We're so used to the story that sometimes we miss how strange the story is. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be stripped naked. He's about to be beaten and to be mocked, to be condemned, to be ridiculed and, and hung up in the air for public exhi exhibition. He's about to be taunted as he dies. He's about to have the flies and presumably the rats and the birds come and peck at him. You know? he, he's about to be totally dehumanised. Doesn't sound like his glory, does it? Sounds more like his shame, his ignominy, his horror. But he says, No, this, this is my splendor. This is my, it's not just my glory, it's the glory of God the Father. 
In fact, my glory is his glory, his glory is my glory. And, and, and you have to think right back to the very start of the book to understand why. Chapter 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh and we have beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only come from the Father full of, anyone remember? Grace and truth. See, God's glory is not in his lightning, it's not in his thunder. It's not seen in his wealth, though he's richer than all. It's not seen in his strength, though he's more powerful than anyone. No, it's in his character that his glory is seen. His character of grace and truth or his mercy and faithfulness. You know, go back to the website if you want if you weren't here and, and, and refresh your memory if you were here. And, and that was about to be on full display as the Messiah fulfilled his purposes through the betrayal and through his death on the cross. All three willed it, Judas, Satan, God. Judas was not a helpless victim. And through it all, God's wisdom and plan reigned supreme, as it always will. But let's come back to this mark of love. We've seen Jesus' love and how he started to show them the full extent of his love. It's going to continue on. It's not done yet. And so with the betrayer gone and the wheels now in motion and only those left who are truly his disciples, he gives them this new command, the ultimate command, which is to shape and guide and direct their lives in every aspect of them from here on out. And so verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, he says it's a new command, though in some senses it's not that new. I mean, we read the Old Testament law that said, love your neighbour, right? Uh, and don't hate them. In Leviticus 19.34, you've got to love the alien and stranger who lives amongst you, not an interplanetary kind of alien, you know, come to abduct us, but the stranger who, who, who's there to find refuge amongst you. The, the Old Testament law taught them to love their neighbour, but this is way more than that. There is a lot that's new about it. It's more than just not doing mean things. You can reflect on that list of commands in Leviticus 19, about you know, which concludes with love your neighbour as yourself. They're all don't do things. Don't steal from them. Don't lie to them. Don't rip them off. Don't move the boundary markers. Don't, you know. So it's a little bit hollow. You could have nothing to do with them and be fulfilling those commands, couldn't you? You know, it's saying, you know, don't be a bad guy in society. That's how you love your neighbour. This is far more than that. And who it's directed to, it's different. Israel was just to, to love their neighbour, whoever was around, you know. Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, you've got to have this love for each other that is totally unlike anything else. And there's a reason for it. Because it's going to get hard, guys, in the days to come. And we're going to hit that as we go through these five chapters. And you're going to need each other. And you won't be able to go on without each other. 
you have to love each other. It's new in that way. It's different to the love you're to show to the world. You have to love everyone, but you especially have to love the household of God. Galatians chapter 6. This is Jesus' love. This is love because Jesus loved. This is love that he had for his disciples kind of love. And I want to highlight two aspects of this love which I think will profoundly change the way we approach our love towards each other. And not just to people here at this church, but but to Christians generally. We've got to think about the persecuted church and the other churches around. And, and First aspect, this love is profound in its self-sacrifice. That is the character of this love. This is Jesus' kind of love. It's a love that gives and doesn't take. It's a love that sees needs and thinks, how can I meet them? Uh, Even to the point of giving everything, if need be. As Jesus explains a little later on during this very meal, in chapter 15, verse 13, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Or as John himself on reflection wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and truth. You think of how it looked in practice in the early church. You know, the church in Jerusalem, we read about in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44 where, where they looked around and if anyone had need, people went, oh, I've got to sell some stuff. I've got to pocket on eBay because I've got to help my brother out. Even to the point of going, you know what? I've got some extra property, I'm going to sell that because these guys need help. Or the church in Macedonia talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, Paul uses them as an example. He says, though they were the poorest of the poor Christians in the whole world, they begged me for the privilege of sharing what little money they had, both for the mission and for the, the church in Jerusalem who was going through uh, a famine at the time and there was starvation. And they begged for the privilege of being able to love others. And he gave in and said, okay. It's profound in its self-sacrifice. Secondly, this love is profound in its goal. And I don't think we often miss that point in its purpose. In its, it's not aimless. It's not just pouring out yourself others simply to impress God or, or giving everything away to the first person who asks because I have to sacrifice, and there you go, you you came first. There's the house. It's your house, but anyway. Uh, There's a point to it. There's a reason for it. There's something, a goal that that gives it shape and real teeth. What's the aim of Jesus' love? Why was Jesus loving them like this? Well, partly it was to help them, right, to save them, to bring people right and pure before God, cleansed and forgiven. But overarching even that, what was driving that was an overwhelming motivation that this would glorify his heavenly Father. And it's that goal, that purpose, that end which sets this love of Jesus and the love he calls us to have for each other apart from any other kind of love that you might ever know. 
because it's the kind of love that will seek to glorify God in everything that we do. So I guess here's the rub. Would people know you by your love for other believers that you're a Christian? Would people know us as a church by our love for one another that this is really a Jesus kind of church? I reckon this calls for the the most deepest and serious and searching reflections on ourselves and I'm and I'm pretty certain that this can't just leave us with any sense of complacency. For some of us, it, it's time to get serving. You may think, on reflection, you know what? I'm a passenger. I've been a passenger a long time. Maybe it's time to take off your jacket, hoik up your trouser legs, put a towel around your waist and get washing. Or serving in some other practical, helpful kind of way. Right? I think that to our shame as a church that more than half of our cleaning is done by over 70-year-olds. Right? From the 8 o'clock congregation. That says something, doesn't it? Oh, it says something about them. It's really gracious and kind. <laughs> you know, good on them. I'm glad they're volunteering and, and doing it. But, you know... For some of us, it might mean making some apologies to others for not loving them as we ought. Eh, don't like talking to them. Too difficult. They just whinge all the time. Eh, it's like they need help or something. Uh, well, you could give it to them. <laughs> yeah, perhaps we've held grudges. Or, or we've deliberately turned a blind eye to the obvious needs of those around us. That should not be the case. Now, I'm not saying it's always being nice either. I mean, one of the things in Leviticus, the thing stood out, the one positive command that you were to go and do as you love your neighbour as yourself is rebuke them when they're doing the wrong thing. That's the only thing in there that was go and do something positive. And that's a hard word, isn't it? It's loving to do that they might be warned and they might grow and they might repent. There's all kinds of ways, you know, that we need to think this through. Our love for the persecuted church. How do we love them? How do we stand with them? Do we pray? How do we give? How do do we go? What what do we do? For all of us, it must mean thinking, how, how can we invest in the lives of those who sit in the pews here week by week but we've had little or no interest in forming bonds with? Now, I'm not saying that every single person needs to, to care for one another and we, we, we set up systems and structures like the small groups in order to facilitate that and, and if you're not in one and you're feeling a bit unloved, get in one because that's where the love is, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm not talking about being shy either. I mean, they find it difficult, but I'm talking about those who just don't want to care. Dear friends, they, look around. They, these are the brothers and sisters who Christ died for who he gave everything for. We mustn't treat them with disdain. We've got to examine ourselves and see if indeed we do bear this indelible mark of those who belong to Christ, that we love one another just as Christ loved us. I think in lots of ways we do. and It's not perfect and we struggle. We can always do better. And for some it's more than others. And <laughs> But it's got to stem from his love because it's when we comprehend and understand and experience the love of Jesus in our forgiveness by his death that that we can start to love one another 
that then we must love one another, that we cannot help but one love one another. And when we do, the world cannot help but see who we truly belong to, whose we truly are. Now we'll come to someone who was a great failure in it. We meet at the end of the chapter, but we'll touch on that next week. A new commandment I give to you, says the Lord, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Amen. Father, we know this is a hard word, that we're constantly tempted not to love, and certainly not love for the love of Christ. Please forgive us. Please change us. Open our eyes and open our hearts and open our wallets and open our homes to each other, to other Christians, to love them and care for them. Help us to be deep in prayer, be thinking of practical ways. We thank you for those who do work behind the scenes and thank you for those lovely people from 8 o'clock who do give their time and energy to come and vacuum and all the rest. Thank you for the many who serve in, in ways around here, the band and you know those who are on rosters to do things. We thank you for the love that's behind the scenes and the visitation and the, the kindnesses and, and those who've cared for one another when it's hard. And we pray, please, that you'll help us to do this more and more, that we might bear this mark of Jesus in our lives. Amen.